Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Katz, the host for this episode. Today, we'll be talking to Max Siolun about his book, What Britain Did to Nigeria, A Short History of Conquest and Rule. Max Siolun, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. Max, I wonder if you could start by telling us a bit about how your interest in Nigerian history developed. Sure. Um, happy to do so. And I, and I guess there's um, two vectors for that. One is um, I am the, the son of a history buff, so to speak. So uh, growing up as a kid um, in in a country like Nigeria, which um, doesn't really prioritize historical education, to my delight, um, my dad kept very, very meticulous diaries of both his personal life and also macro events that were occurring around him. So reading his diary was, was almost like um, reading a history of, you know, his life as well as he um, as he grew up. So I think that's what initially fueled my interest in history. And then secondly, um, that that interest was very, very apt because, as I said, there, there's really a vacuum of historical teaching, especially in the academic sector in Nigeria. So I think those two circumstances coincided to ignite the interest in me and to encourage me to, to start writing too. Great. Yeah. And you, you touched on a, a sort of another question I had, which is that um, there are a number of moments in the book where you compare the historical narrative that you're presenting um, with that that is sort of taught to Nigerian school children. So could you sort of provide maybe some examples um, of this where sort of, you know, what, what you found in your research was sort of different than perhaps what is taught in, in Nigerian schools? Sure. No problem at all. So perhaps for the benefit of your listeners who are not so familiar with Nigeria, and look, I, I, I know that there's probably tons of Nigeria experts listening, but for those who are not subject matter experts on Nigeria, the thing to be cognizant of is that until a few years ago, history was not taught in Nigerian schools at all, as astonishing as that sounds. And even then, yes, now it's been restored, but the, the history that was taught before and after that interregnum was really the colonizers' history. You have to look back at who designed the Nigerian educational system. The architects of Nigerian education were Christian missionaries from Europe. Their objective was basically to teach Nigerians to read and write in English in order to convert them to Christianity. That was really the objective of education. And then latterly, when the colonial government belatedly started to take an interest in education, their motivation was to educate in English again in order to produce an indigenous workforce to assist them in the colonial administration of Nigeria because it was cheaper to employ Nigerian educated personnel than it was to employ and pay British expatriate staff. So unfortunately, with that context, that historical context, um, post-colonial Nigerian government never indigenized that education system. So basically for the last 60 to 100 years, what you basically had is 
Nigerians going to school and being fed on a steady diet of the colonizers' narrative, which is that, look, colonialism was a, a civilizing mission. It was this kind of necessary medicine that Britain had to reluctantly administer to these very, very uncivilized and backward natives for their own good. So this book I wrote is really an attempt to challenge some of those civilizing noble narratives, um, British constructed narratives about um, colonial rule of Nigeria. And sort of relatedly, and I mean, I know you want, you know, more than just Nigerians to, to read your book, but, you know, if there is sort of like one or, or two key points that you hope sort of Nigerian readers take away after reading this book, what would those be? I, I would say that there's a couple of things that really surprised and resonated with me when I read the book. The first is the extent of resistance because um, the resistance by the indigenous Nigerian population against colonial rule is almost absent from both um, the colonial narratives and from the Nigerian institutional memory. So there tends to be this mistaken assumption that the indigenous population just accepted the British arrival in Nigeria and that, you know, it was kind of this benevolent dictatorship was not the case at all. I was surprised that there was so much resistance in all corners of the country, um, both civil disobedience and um, insurgent resistance, and that it went on for decades. I mean, the, the British colonial um, project in Nigeria started in the mid 1800s and wasn't completed until after World War One. So during most of that 50 to 70 odd years or so, there was fierce, fierce resistance, especially in the area that is now southeastern Nigeria. Then as a corollary of that, another thing that surprised me is that, again, Nigerians tend to think that um, women did not have agency and were not prominent in pre-colonial Nigeria. And researching this book has shown that that's a complete fallacy. So I, I mentioned this resistance. One of the things that really surprised me in the research is that some of the leaders of the resistance were women. And that, in fact, the civil disobedience campaigns by women say the, the so-called women's war in southeastern Nigeria in the nine, late 1920s and also about 15, 20 years later in um, southwestern Nigeria, they actually forced and extracted compromises and policy changes from the British colonial administration. And they were actually more effective than some of the insurgent violent campaigns waged by men. So when we talk about colonialism in Nigeria, it tends to be a story about men. So again, I would just encourage Nigerians to be cognizant of the the role, the prominent role that women played, especially people like um, Fela Kuti's mom, Fumilaya Ransom Kuti, that she was one of the um, resistance leaders and one of the, the prominent leaders of the, the women's protest in, in southwestern Nigeria. Great. Well, as you've sort of already um, hinted at, uh, the book is fairly wide ranging, spanning from uh, 1472 to the 1950s. Uh, the, the heart of the book is really kind of the 19th century um, into the first couple of decades of the 1900s. Whereas your previous books were kind of on a kind of much more focused time range, and they were on more contemporary uh, periods of history. 
So I was curious if you could just kind of reflect on how the process of researching and writing this book compared to your previous books. Sure. Um, so again, for, for, for those who are unfamiliar with my work, um, I, I'd, prior to this book, I'd written a trilogy of books on Nigerian history, the, the post-colonial history of Nigeria, the, the post-independence history of Nigeria, which started from independence in 1960 and kind of tackled, you know, 10 to 15 year periods at the time. So the first one tackled the, the 1960s, the early, sorry, the mid 1970s period. And the next one started in the late seventies, worked its way up to the early 1990s. And the last one kind of started early nineties and ended at the turn of the 21st century. So in doing that, I, I felt it was important to, to write that trilogy of books because most of Nigeria's population, 70% of whom are under 30 years old, they grew up under the shadow of military rule. And the military was in power for 29 of the first 33 years of Nigeria's post-independence history. So that was just something that was just so relevant to the, um, the life experience and you know the, the lives of most Nigerians. Then after writing that trilogy, it occurred to me that there's this kind of empire nostalgia in Nigeria. And what I mean by that is, in most formerly colonized countries, you usually find two um, kind of currents. One is some type of hostility to the former colonizer. So if you go to Rwanda, for example, Burundi, Kenya, they tend not to have much love for Belgium and Britain, respectively. Secondly, is that once countries become independent, they, they usually try to do something affirmative to really, really signify their independence and to show that they are now separate from the former colonizer. But in Nigeria's case, that's not, that's not so. In fact, um, there's feelings of veneration for Britain and it is not uncommon in Nigeria to hear things like, oh, you know, things would be much better if the British rulers came back or if they stayed for another 20 or 30 years. And the reason why people have those sorts of mistaken feelings of um, nostalgia for the British Empire is because, as I mentioned at the, the top of the interview, they've only ever heard the colonizers' account. They've only ever heard the rationalizations for colonialism that say that look, pre-colonial Nigeria was basically this basket case land, um, a land of chaos and disorder until um, Britain came and stabilized things and gave them good government and stability and education and all those good things. So I, I really had to challenge and make Nigerians question some of these feelings of veneration that they have and ask themselves, are, are those feelings justified or not? Great. Um, so now we'll kind of get into, um, you know, sort of the, the actual meat of the book itself. Um, so in part one of the book, you sort of sketch out uh, the varied pre-colonial kingdoms, states, and decentralized societies that existed in what would become Nigeria. So for the listeners, you know, especially those who are, are not familiar with Nigerian history, can you just give a sense by kind of how wide ranging these uh, pre-colonial political structures and cultures were? Sure, ha happy to do so. And um, 
I'll do so by reference to two things. One is geography, the geography of Nigeria, and two is by, again, challenging one of these assumptions about pre-colonial Nigeria. So um, for those unfamiliar with Nigeria, the, the name of the country, Nigeria, it's, it's derived from the river Niger, which bisects the country in two, both on a north-south axis and an east-west um, lines as well. So pre-colonial, if we look at pre-colonial Nigeria, it was dominated by four large states. Two of them were north of that river, I mentioned the river Niger, and two of them were south of the river Niger. So if I start with the ones north of the river Niger, the first one I'll mention is uh, was called the Sokoto Caliphate. So it was at, at, the, at its you know, height, it was the largest pre-colonial state in Africa. It um, traversed most of what is now northern Nigeria. Its eastern border extended into Cameroon. It extended into Niger, which is now to the north of Nigeria. And its western border almost ended up in Mali. So it extended into Burkina Faso as well. And in its heyday, traveling from one end of the caliphate to the other was a six-month journey. The second... Um, large pre-colonial state in what is now northern Nigeria was the Kanem Borno Empire. Um, the, the rump of that empire is now in northeastern Nigeria, which is now most unfortunately known for the Boko Haram insurgency, but in pre-colonial um, times was actually the longest running kingdom in African history. Um, it was over a thousand years old and in its heyday, extended from what is now northeastern Nigeria into Chad and its northernmost border almost reached into what is now modern day Libya. These two states I mentioned were incredibly sophisticated, had foreign embassies with European countries such as Turkey, sent people on pilgrimages to the Middle East, um, had cadres of trained, literate, very, very erudite, Scholars. So these were very, very sophisticated states. To the south of the River Niger were another, were two other large states. One was the Oyo Empire, which is really the, the precursor empire to what is now Nigeria's Yoruba people in southwestern Nigeria. And it also um, extended from what is now southwestern Nigeria into Togo, into Benin, Benin Republic, just to be clear. And then the second large empire south of the river Niger was called the um, the Benin Empire, not to be confused with the country called the Republic of Benin. Um, I hope everyone's still following. Um, and those two, um, those two empires, although they were separate, they claimed common descent, that they, they claimed basically that they were descended from the same person, that the, the people who established those empires were sons of the same man. Now, to their east, I've been mentioning these very, very large state stroke kingdoms ruled by paramount powerful rulers to the east of them was a completely different situation. In what is now southeastern Nigeria, so among the Igbo people, the Efik, the Ibibio, the Anang, etc., they had no culture of chiefs. They didn't have rulers at all. They were completely egalitarian societies that did not recognize rulership and every person in society was equal and all matters affecting the entire community had to be taken by consensus with the input and um, 
consensus of all clan, of all the leaders of each family, basically the, the oldest person in each family. So in fact, to encapsulate this, um, there's an Igbo maxim that goes, the Igbo knows no king. So when we contextualize some of the problems of modern Nigeria in leadership selection and having problems um, choosing one leader to accept, that's acceptable to the entire country, we have to contextualize it in the light of these very, very diametrically opposed pre-colonial cultures, some of which venerated large kingdoms and strong, powerful monarchs, and some of which completely rejected them and refused integration into large states. So I think some of the pro political problems with leadership that we find, especially in southeastern Nigeria, we, we have to look through the lens of um, an ancient culture that just rejected incorporation into large states and um, being ruled by paramount rulers. Like a lot of African countries, particularly those along the Atlantic coast, in the territory that would become Nigeria, the first interactions with Europeans concerned trade. So in part one and part two of your book, you give particular attention to the trade and exploration along the Niger River. Um, so you've already kind of hinted at this a bit in your previous answer, but kind of what made this river so important, both for the local inhabitants as well as the British? So um, the first Europeans to arrive on what was then called the Slave Coast, which is basically the, the southern Atlantic coast of West Africa, were slave traders. For hundreds of years, they never penetrated into the interior of Africa. They just anchored their ships at shore and, you know, collected slaves and then left for the Americas. And that was it. And for hundreds of years, they never actually saw the interior of Africa. The reason for that was the climate was incredibly hospitable, inhospitable rather for them. And they, those who dared enter died from a mysterious fever-like illness that they called AIDS. They didn't know what it was then, but we now know so-called AIDS is actually what we now call malaria. So I think two or three things coincided to encourage Europeans to start entering into the interior of Africa. One was they discovered this river that I mentioned, the River Niger, that this river basically was an artery, was a way for them to enter the interior of Africa without kind of traveling over inhospitable terrain, going through forests and so on. Secondly, th they invented and started using quinine prophylactically to, to stop this disease called AIDS. So all of a sudden, European life expectancy in the West African coast increased. Thirdly, the steamship was invented, which meant that all of a sudden you could travel between Europe and Africa at much, much shorter distance, sorry, much, much shorter time, much faster, and you could convey economic produce from Africa to Europe in larger quantities and quicker. And then the fourth thing is that the Industrial Revolution was unfolding in Europe and the raw materials to, and now we're talking 18th century or so. So the raw materials to power that Industrial Revolution in Europe were present in West Africa. And I'll give a few examples. So as machinery became more important to production in Europe and human labor became less important, 
palm oil from West Africa became critical for lubricating the industrial machines in Europe. Also in 18th century Europe, hygiene standards and infant mortality levels were absolutely appalling. So soap, washing and hygiene became absolutely essential for survival. And again, the raw materials for making soap, palm trees and so on, were in West Africa. Then as Europe um, transportation became mechanized, the pneumatic rubber tire was invented in Europe. And again, the raw materials for making rubber tires was rubber and gum trees in Africa. So it became absolutely essential for European industrial advancement and the acceleration of that advancement for them to find a way to extract produce um, from West Africa. And that's what really encouraged Europeans and especially Brits to start going inland into the land that later became Nigeria. Great. And one of your chapters um, is dedicated to, you know, the interesting history of Jaja, um, which in many ways sort of illustrates the hubris of the British. You know, while they desired to cut out the middlemen in trade, this was easier said than done. So how does the story of Jaja show this and kind of what else do you find sort of compelling about this story? So um, there's, there's, there's a couple of ironies that maybe I'll, I'll point out. And for, and for those who are not familiar with the story of Jaja, so I'll just quickly give a precy of the way that Europeans extracted these, this produce that I mentioned from West Africa. They didn't extract the produce themselves. So when they wanted to get palm oil, they went through African intermediaries that were called middlemen. So basically, you pay the, the middleman a commission and he goes and gets the x tons or barrels of palm oil for you and give it to you now the european companies did not want to pay the middlemen because it ate into their profits they just basically wanted to get the produce themselves directly without candidly paying for it jaja was a man from um what is now southeastern nigeria and he was the most prominent of these middlemen he was stupendously wealthy stupendously powerful and he insisted that, look, to the Europeans, if you want to extract economic produce from my land, you've got to pay for it. And when he became an obstacle, they just, the, the Brits basically arrested him and exiled him to um, the Caribbean where he died. So the, the irony I find from this is that, you know, we, in, in the modern day, we kind of tend to think of Europe as, you know, a land of competition where, socialism and is discouraged and capitalism is encouraged. Yet in pre-colonial times, um, the British companies who were extracting for produce, they did not want a capitalist, well, they wanted a capitalist system to operate in Europe, but not in West Africa because that was anti their interest. So the British government basically sanctioned a monopoly, the creation of a state-sanctioned monopoly company called the Royal Niger Company which was the only company allowed to prospect for and mine produce from West Africa and basically eliminated all the, the local competition. So that's the first irony I would mention. And the second irony I would mention is that, you know, part of the justification for colonialism was that West Africa was a land teeming with riches and produce that these very naive Africans could not exploit themselves without the intervention and assistance of the much, much more knowledgeable European um, traders. So the story of Jaja, who 
made himself very wealthy, very successful. And there were others like him. There was Nana, um, Na uh, Nana Olumo and many others as well. The story of successful traders, those successful indigenous traders completely contradicts this story that Africans were incapable of exploiting their own resources without um, European assistance. Great, yeah. Uh, you also, you dedicate a fair bit of attention to George Goldie and his sort of various business ventures, you know, particularly the Royal Niger Company. How do the activities of Goldie and his company in many ways sort of foreshadow the period of intense colonial conquest throughout Nigeria? So, so, so I, I would say um, the kind of the, the, the British conquest of Nigeria it did not occur in one quantum leap. It was almost a, a case of slow mission creep to some extent. So Britain first came to extract, you know, goods in terms of people, slaves. Then secondly, um, it came to extract produce when it realized that there was abundant natural resources in the area that is now West Africa. The use of mercantile companies like the Royal Niger Company and George Goldie, etc., it was convenient for the British government because at the time that Britain started conquering Nigeria, this was we're talking late 19th century. So really, you, you, you're getting towards the latter era of the British Empire, and Britain was actually losing interest in acquiring more colonies because, one, it was expensive. You had to pay the colonial administrators. Two, it was dangerous because of, you know, malaria, and also sometimes the, the, the indigenous population fought wars of resistance. So they, they basically didn't want to be sending their armies all over the world anymore to conquer these people in these endless and expensive wars of conquest. So subcontracting the job of governing, of extracting resources, of the unpopular and unpleasant aspects of colonialism like taxation was a win-win for the British government. So basically, you have a company, a corporation, doing all the ugly bits of colonialism for you. It creates distance between the acts of the corporation and the British government. So if it goes wrong, well, it's not really the government doing it, it's this private corporation doing it. And then secondly, if it does go well, well, that's also a win for the government because it had the foresight to select and appoint a visionary like George Goldie and his Royal Niger company to, um, to administer the, 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 the colony on behalf of the British government. So um, direct British government rule of Nigeria only actually lasted 60 years from 1900 to 1960. Before then, the whole business of colonialism for the previous few decades was run by private companies like the Royal Niger Company. So that kind of is a good segue into part three, um, which concerns the kind of the main period of colonial conquest, which you place um, from 1851 to 1920. You start with an exploration of sort of what gets often sort of popularly referred to as Glover's Houses, um, which is sort of generally considered to be the start of the modern day Nigerian army. So who were Glover's Houses and kind of how did this mark the start of Britain's policy of racialized military recruitment, as you put it? Sure. So... The, the modern day Nigerian army, if you go back, 
it traces its origins to a colonial constabulary force called Glover's Houses, which is formed by a British Navy officer called um, Captain John Hawley Glover. So I mentioned in my answer to the previous question that colonialism was an expensive business. It was costly. So to reduce the financial costs and human costs of conquering um, Nigeria, a, a, a British tactic, the standard modus operandi, was to go into a territory that was to be conquered and find an ethnic group that Britain considered, quote unquote, a martial race. So, for example, in India, it was Sikhs. They were the favored martial race in India. In Uganda, it was Langis and Acholis. Um, so Britain would deliberately start the, the, the colonial military force all with um, or mostly with soldiers from one ethnic group that were considered to be natural warriors or to have soldierly qualities. In Nigeria's case, the chosen martial race was the Hausas, which were the most prominent ethnic group from the north. The reason why they were um, chosen is because they were the primary, the, the predominant ethnic group in the Sokoto Caliphate, um, an empire which had been established by a pre-colonial empire that had been established by warfare and conquest. So the Brits tended to look at them as quote unquote natural warriors who had ex experience of combat and Hausas, more importantly, in pre-colonial Nigeria were extremely prolific itinerant traders. So they had traveled across North and West Africa. They knew the land, they knew the topography. So they were useful guides and escorts for British military patrols as well. So this kind of caused two effects. When um, Britain was conquering Nigeria, what you tended to have is that a lot of the soldiers in the conquering army were indigenous people from one part of the country. And the people that were being conquered were indigenous people from another part of the country. And that created some very, very negative institutional memories in post-colonial Nigeria, because when Britain left, it basically left a military that was ethnically lopsided in favor of one part of the country. And that generated a lot of resentment in the southern part of the country. And then when Nigeria fell into military rule, you basically had a succession of northern-led military dictatorships simply because northerners were preponderant in the military. So a, a, a lot of the instability that post-independence Nigeria has experienced with military coups and so on has been really a reaction or as an outcome of the resentment of some parts of the country against what they basically felt was an ethno-regional military force. And also, um, military recruitment in Nigeria still is a, an extremely hypersensitive issue. So to correct this historical ethno-regional imbalance, the Nigerian military now implements a regional quota into the military, which everyone watches like a hawk. So while the quota is being implemented, there's two things that we need to be cognizant of. One is because for a for hundred years, the military had been staffed with people from one part of the country. You cannot erase that just overnight with some affirmative action programs and a racialized quota. It's going to take generations to correct. Um, secondly, the quota only works if every part of the country actually fills their quota, which always doesn't happen. It's difficult. You, you can't. Nigeria, is a, Nigeria has a volunteer army, so you can't force people to join the military. So sometimes... Although 
the military and the government is very, very sensitized to the, to the issue of um, equal um, racial representation in the military, it is very, very hard to achieve because some parts of the, of the country are enthusiastic about military um, recruitment. Other parts of the country are less enthusiastic. So I think it's a historical issue and it's still an ongoing issue that Nigeria is going to keep grappling with and which is absolutely fundamental to the, to the stability of the whole country because as we've seen in Nigeria, what happens to the military tends to happen to the rest of the country. And, you know, as you mentioned too, it wasn't just houses that, you know, Britain considered to be a kind of so-called uh, martial race. What other ethnicities got branded this way and, and why? Yeah, sure. So houses were the primary um, race that got branded in uh, a so-called so martial race. The other martial races were people who lived on the frontiers of Hausa land. So because Britain had kind of placed the Hausas at the apex of their hierarchy of martial races, other ethnic groups who resisted them or who showed valor in fighting against them themselves got stereotyped as martial races. So if you look at what is um, currently the so-called middle belt of Nigeria, which is the, the middle region of Nigeria. So you look at states like Kaduna State, Benue State, um, Taraba Adamawa State. So these are areas where it, it, it's in, these are areas in northern Nigeria, but the ethnic groups in those areas are Hausa speaking, but not ethnically Hausa. So to facilitate language and communication in the military, what Britain did is to say, okay, where we cannot find ethnic Hausas, we will find their neighbors who have somehow proved their aptitude in battle who already speak Hausa so that fine, we can enlarge recruitment, but in a way that doesn't disturb the linguistic characteristics of the military. So even till today, the, you know, for the last 25, 30 years or so on, um, many of the combatant soldiers in the Nigerian military are from Northern minority ethnic groups like the Tiv, the Idoma, the Igala, the Bachama, the Zuru. And these ethnic stereotypes, it wasn't, they were so successful on, on the part of Britain that even the indigenous people have absorbed them. So the, some of these ethnic groups that I've mentioned, if you go to those communities, you'll barely find a family without a, a retired or serving soldier. And they will proudly say to you, we are warriors. And they will pr proudly mention to you that they, um, that, that their traditions of valor and military service. And unfortunately, the parts of Nigeria that the Brits kind of looked down upon because they were quote unquote bookish people. So that's largely southeastern Nigeria. Because those parts of Nigeria took the education, the Brits basically didn't trust them to be warriors or to be soldiers. And they just basically felt, look, these people are a little bit too articulate and too erudite to be trusted to follow orders and to be warriors. So unfortunately, when those people get recruited into the military, they don't tend to serve in combatant units. They serve in technical units as education officers, as signalers. They work in telecoms. They work in jobs where they're not carrying rifles. And that just reinforced that racial imbalance that Britain implemented in the colonial era 
and it's been so hard to get rid of in the in the post-colonial era. Also, how did sort of Britain's phobia of Islamic fundamentalism sort of encourage this branching out from just houses in terms of you know military recruitment? Sure, sure. So when Britain first started conquering what is now Nigeria, this racialized policy of military recruitment worked because the first areas that Britain arrived at just because of Nigeria's topography was the south which is largely non-Islamic population. So it's not a problem using Muslim house of soldiers to conquer non-Muslim territories. You know, it worked for several decades. But then all of a sudden, Britain suddenly realized, oh, now we've got to conquer the Muslim territories as well. And now we might be faced with a scenario where we order Muslims, Muslim soldiers, to open fire on and conquer fellow Muslims. So... The British administrators, the colonial administrators like Lord Lugard, became very, very concerned about the potential for religion, especially Islam, to became to become rather a rallying point for military mutiny or rebellion. So what they did is they tried to dilute the Muslim contingent in the army by recruiting these um northern minority ethnic groups who could speak Hausa but we're but were not ethnically Hausa and were not Muslims either. So you you start to see more northern minority Christian ethnic groups like Tivs being um recruited en masse into the military. So in the early nineteen hundreds, if you thought Nigerian soldier, the term Nigerian soldier was synonymous with Hausa. By the, the 1950s, 1940s or so, World War II era, that started to change a little bit. And it was now Tivs who were becoming the prototypical um, Nigerian soldier. And again, the reason for that was the need to make the military a Hausa speaking, but less of a Muslim force. So a Hausa speaking multi-religious force. So in the, in the next kind of section, you, you cover um, a, a number of different British military campaigns against a variety of political states. You know, as you've mentioned kind of earlier, you find you really kind of focus on these examples of sort of violent conquest um, kind of all over the country um, in sort of what will become, you know, Nigeria. So what themes or patterns emerged for you kind of when going over these sort of varied histories of violent conquest? The, the main thing is that um, the British narrative has always been that the, the British conquest of Nigeria was incredibly peaceful and was without much loss of life on either side. That definitely was not true. It was ultra 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 violent and um reading some of the the british colonial accounts of how they conquered nigeria it's a bit like i i guess a, a contemporary i guess metaphor i can find for it is some of the dossiers that we read before the modern day iraq wars you know from that spoke about liberation and and, and these these kind of um stereotype themes and so on so um to illustrate the, the extent of violence that was used 
um, to, to, to conquer some of the land that are, are now in modern day Nigeria. I'll use an example from um, northern Nigeria from a town called Satiru. So I actually know um, socially someone who's from um, the area that is now in northern Nigeria around a town called Satiru. And I asked her, oh, have you heard of Satiru before? She said no, that she'd never heard of it. The reason why she's never heard of Satiru is because it doesn't exist anymore. Um, this is a town of several thousand people and Britain in conquering this area just absolutely wiped, just wiped the town off, off the face of the earth. Um, just burned by their own admission, killed every living thing, even the animals, burned every living thing, even the trees to the ground. Um, they killed 3,000 people in one afternoon. Then in another campaign in Burmi, um, they fired 30,000 rounds in one day to subdue a, a bunch of native defenders that were really only armed with bows and arrows and primitive gardening implements like hoes and, and axes. So force and intimidation was very, very critical to the implementation of the colonial project because at any one time, there was only ever a few hundred Brits in Nigeria and surrounded by millions of Nigerians. And it was important to have these overwhelmingly violent military responses and conquests to intimidate the local population, to discourage rebellion, and to show them what would happen to them if they ever dared to fight back. I think another theme that will emerge too for, for readers is just how flimsy the pretext um, was for a lot of these sort of military incursions, um, which, you know, sometimes even generated some tension between those that were kind of on the ground um, versus those that were kind of back in, in London. Can you just give like maybe, you know, one or two examples of, of that? Sure. And, and it's important to, to note that the conquest of Nigeria, some of it was facilitated by fraud. And I can give two examples. So one is um, Britain tended to conquer lands by one of two ways. One was by military conquest. Two was by entering into so-called treaties with native chiefs, where the chiefs allegedly for, you know, minor insignificant items like bottles of gin and umbrellas would cede control of their land. Um, by by signing quote unquote signing treaties. Now, when we examine some of these ancient treaties whereby the chiefs allegedly ceded their lands, some of them were bare naked forgery. So, um, some of the colonial administrators like Lord Lugard, George Goldie, and so, and so on would produce supposedly signed treaties at the colonial office that because they were allegedly signed by illiterate indigenous Nigerian chiefs the chiefs would annotate their signature with an X mark. But when we look at some of these treaties, you'll notice that the X's on the treaties are completely symmetrical and identical in all the treaties, clearly giving away that the writer is literate and B, that it is the same person signing all these treaties with supposedly different chiefs in, in different parts of Nigeria. So that was one type of fraud, which is document fraud. The second type of fraud is, I would term it military fraud, which is, again, using the Iraq war analogy, sexing up and creating exaggerated dossiers of the risk posed by the indigenous population 
in order to justify a military invasion. So again, at this time, because the colonial office in London was very reluctant to engage in wars of conquest because it was expensive, the military and colonial officers on the ground, like Lord Lugard, had to create alarms in London to justify them and to instigate them into um, approving military campaigns and wars of conquest. Another example is Lugard in the conquest of Northern, Northern Nigeria. The ruler of what was then Northwestern Nigeria, which is the Sultan of Sokoto, um, who is really the, the spiritual leader of Muslims in Northern Nigeria, Lugard had written him a letter basically informing him of Britain's arrival. Now, the account we have had for the last 120 odd years is that the Sultan, the indigenous ruler, gave an incredibly bellicose and hostile reply to Lugard in which he basically declared war and declared that Britons were unwelcome in northern Nigeria. And Lugard produced and sent to the colonial office in, in London an alleged translation of that letter written by the Sultan. Now, in doing my research for this book, I came across other translations of that letter and the Sultan said nothing of the kind. He gave a very, very um, non-offensive, non-hostile, non-bellicose um, reply to Lugard and somebody, either Lugard himself or somebody working for him, deliberately sent a mistranslated copy of that letter to the colonial office which made it sound like the Sultan would ho was hostile when he was in fact not. And the colonial office reluctantly approved an invasion of Northern Nigeria based on this basically forged um, reply, which allegedly came from the Sultan. So I, th I think um, we, we have to also acknowledge the, the, the slight of hand and the fraud and, and candidly the lies that accompanied the, the colonial conquest as well. Then sort of part four of the book kind of concerns the very important topic of resistance. Um, so what were some of the different methods Nigerians used to resist British colonization? Happy to, to, to discuss that. And maybe um, also in, in answering that question, it would be useful just to examine why people resisted. So one of Britain's arguments for entering Nigeria was that it wanted to abolish slavery. So Britain, you know, abolished slavery for its citizens or made it rather illegal for its citizens to engage in slavery with effect from 1808. But in Nigeria and other colonies, Britain implemented this system of labor that they termed very benignly, quote unquote, forced labor, which is basically they would conscript indigenous people against their will and recruit them to be laborers, to work, to farm, to carry the bags of British colonial officers, to serve in the colonial military against their will. And if people refused, they were basically summarily executed. Now, from the colonial mind, or from the, the, the point of view of the colonized, Britain is telling you, oh, we are here to abolish slavery. But then they implement this system of quote-unquote forced labor, which involves forcing people to work against their will without pay. So it made Britain appear very, very hypocritical. And the indigenous population basically felt, look, that Britain has basically come to abolish the pre-existing system of slavery 
in order to replace it with its own system of slavery. So this kind of generated a lot of resentment. The extent of force used against indigenous people created resentment. And the treatment of indigenous rulers, you know, subjecting them to really dehumanizing and, and humiliating treatment, like flogging kings and flogging indigenous chiefs for minor indiscretions, such as answering back against colonial officers or arriving late for a meeting with British officers, this created a lot of hostility. So um, you had two types of resistance emerge. One was violent resistance, and you actually had guerrilla armies, especially in the Southeast and Niger Delta areas of Nigeria. And perhaps the most famous of those um, guerrilla armies was um, an insurgent group called Ekumeku, which from Igbo roughly translates as the silent ones or do not speak. So this was um, originally a secret society which dedicated itself to fighting emanations of British rule. So it, for decades, from the 1800, late 1800s to early 1900s, would attack British military patrols, burn British mission stations to the ground, attack missionaries who were basically in the, in the mind of the indigenous population, indistinguishable from the British colonial administration. Um, so you had that, that type of resistance, which was violent. Because Britain used such overwhelming force and collective punishment to, to react against insurgents. So usually the, the punishment for an insurgency was that any time um, Britain arrested an insurgent as a punishment, they would destroy the entire town where the insurgent um, came from. So even if it was only one person from that village or town that was involved in the insurgency, they would flatten and just use scorched earth tactics and burn the whole town to discourage further insurgencies. So because the, the cost of violent insurgency was so high, we start to see after World War I in the 1920s, civil disobedience campaigns. So I mentioned at the top of the interview um, the prominent role of women. So in southeastern and southwestern Nigeria, women would refuse to pay their taxes would, if they were summoned to appear before a British court, would just ignore the summons and refuse to appear in court. Um, if the British appointed um, indigenous colonial chiefs, whom they called quote-unquote warren chiefs, they would refuse to cooperate with the British um, appointee. So there was a, a, a variety, a wide variety of one, anti-British resistance groups and B, tactics as well deployed. And these, this resistance went on for a good, you know, 50 years. And it wasn't actually until the late 1920s that Britain managed to subdue um, some parts of Nigeria. Some parts of the south, of southeastern Nigeria remained in open revolt until the latter years of um, colonialism. So I think it's important to mention that. Um, just to show how detested in some areas the British colonial administration was. Yeah, and you've sort of you just sort of hinted a, a bit at this, um, but you also kind of explore how you know part of the the reason for resistance is you know the whole system of indirect rule was you know though it claimed to be kind of you know ruling through sort of you know pre-existing. 
forms of authority, it was in fact, you know, often a kind of fiction. Um, so do you, do you want to maybe expand a little bit on how the, the fictional aspect of indirect rule? Sure. sure. So the, the British ruling method of choice was so-called indirect rule. And what that basically meant was that, and this is just not in Nigeria, Britain had done it in India, it done it in Uganda. Mm -hmm. When Britain established a colony, rather than governing directly, what they would try to do was find and recruit pre-existing indigenous chiefs and rulers and incorporate them into the colonial system of governance and basically make them ruling agents on behalf of the British government. Now, in areas where you already had chiefs, kings, rulers, etc. Fine, it worked. You, you had people you could co-opt into the system. But as I mentioned earlier, in southeastern Nigeria, there was a blind spot because there were no kings, there were no rulers. So Britain's ingenious solution to this problem was, that's fine. Where there are no rulers, we will just make them. So what Britain would do was, it would go into areas where there were no rulers and find a man whom Britain felt was a man of means or a man that had a presence about him that, you know, carried some authority and they would basically appoint him a ruler of that area and they would issue him with a letter from Britain, from the British government called a warrant. And once he had that letter, that letter of appointment, he became a quote unquote warrant chief. Now, this caused severe problems. One, because from the indigenous population's point of view, they didn't recognize rulers. They didn't want to be ruled by anyone. And two, appointing one of their own to rule over them basically made the appointee appear like a stooge, like a collaborator of the conqueror. So the, the, the appointee tended to feel the wrath of the indigenous population's hostility and opposition to the, the British colonial establishment. And then in the North, even though there were pre-existing rulers, to some extent, they became glorified warrant chiefs because the rulers who did not do Britain's bidding were either um, summarily executed or exiled or imprisoned. So again, even the pre-existing rulers, one, had to swear an oath of loyalty to the British crown in order to have their appointments confirmed, and B, if they ever did anything that Britain did not approve of, they would be summarily deposed. So to me, the whole concept of indirect rule was really a fiction. It was just a system and polite term for gaining an indigenous um, group of colonial rulers and making them collaborators of the British colonial government. All right, and then in kind of part five, uh, the final section of the book um, examines daily life in colonial Nigeria. And so here, a theme that emerges is sort of how the colonial period further split the northern region from the southern region. Um, so what role did education play in this? Sure. sure. So w when Britain arrived in Nigeria, it, you know, the, the area north of the River Niger was largely Muslim. The area to the south was multi-religious. Some people were Muslim. It was a Muslim minority. And so most people were practicing an, um, animist religions. So what Britain tried to do was um, two was two things. One is to Christianize the area, and B to 
educate the area. Now, Christianization and education came hand in hand because the, the propagators of education or Western education, let's call it that, were Christian missionaries. And they really wanted to educate people so that, because it made it easier to convert them to Christianity because then they could read the Bible, they could speak English, and then they could um, Christianize and proselytize to their compatriots. Now, while Britain allowed missionaries to flourish in the South, it couldn't do that in the North because the area was Muslim and Britain did not want to um, provoke a Muslim backlash. So it basically didn't allow missionaries to proselytize in the North to the same extent that it did in the South. Now, there was an unfortunate consequence of that. Because Christianization went hand in hand with education, it meant that while the South was being Christianized and receiving Western education, the North was not. So basically, Western education was mothballed in the North, and the South had a tremendous head start. So by the time the North started receiving Western education, Southern school kids had been receiving Western education for 50 to 70 years. This had tremendous consequences for, again, the stability of post-independence Nigeria, because when Britain left, all the administrative jobs that, they, that the British colonial officers vacated were quickly filled by Southerners because they had the preponderance of educated people and because something like 98%, you know, as of 1960, about when Nigeria became independent, 98% of school children in Nigeria were Southerners. So the, the North just did not have the raw numbers of educated people to compete with the South. So you, you, you had these mutually reinforcing fears. The North was afraid of the South because it, the South almost had a monopoly on the educated tertiary workforce. And the South feared the North because the North had almost a monopoly on the military. So you had one section of the country um, controlling the economy and the educational sectors the other section of the country controlling the guns. That's, those are not good ingredients for national stability. And again, Nigeria is still grappling with that educational imbalance between the North and South. It is not as stark as it was in 1960, but it is still present. And it's understandable to some extent because, um, because Northerners were very skeptical and reluctant to send their kids for Western education because the educator, the school teacher, was a Christian missionary. So, you know, for, for those Southern Christian Nigerians who don't understand why Northerners, why, you know, Muslim Northerners were so skeptical about receiving, allowing their kids to be educated by a Christian whose stated mission is to convert your Muslim child to Christianity, a good example would be if Saudi Arabia conquered Southern Nigeria, opened madrasas all over Southern Nigeria, and started encouraging um, Nigeria, Southern Nigerian Christian parents, oh, please send your kids to this, um, <laughs> to, to this Quranic school. I'm pretty certain that Southern Nigeria would feel some resistance <laughs> and reluctance to do that. So yes, it's created an educational imbalance, but from the point of view of Muslim Northerners, it was a completely understandable reaction to have that reluctance to send their kids for, for education by Christians. 
Yeah, and of course, the, the same kind of imbalance, you know, happened in the, the sort of the Yoruba Southwest between the, the Muslim uh, and the Christian population. But that's kind of a good uh, segue. You know, your, your final chapter uh, before the conclusion is provocatively titled The Mistake of 1914. Uh, can you explain the mistake that you're referencing here, as well as why many Nigerians sort of still feel this way today? Sure. So one thing to remember that is that when Britain first started ruling, quote unquote, the land now known, known as Nigeria, it wasn't one country. Originally, there was three different territories. There was the colony of Lagos, there was the protectorate of southern Nigeria, and there was the protectorate of northern Nigeria. So from the 1850s until 1914, Nigeria was never one country. It was just three different, you know, British ruled colonial um, territories. Now, in 1914, that is such a seminal year in Nigeria's history, because in 1914, Britain suddenly amalgamated all those territories together with their religious differences, with their cultural differences, with their historical um, differences. So although Britain, ostensibly on paper anyway, amalgamated those territories in 1914, it was really just a, a paper country. So, you know, the country of Nigeria really only existed in pa on paper. In fact, on the ground, not southern, southern and northern Nigeria were governed completely differently. They had different land tenure systems, different criminal codes, different laws, um, different civil services, different educational systems. So when Britain finally left in 1960, I won't actually say that the two protectors of southern Nigeria and northern Nigeria merged. It was more like they collided and crashed into each other with all of those differences di dimensioned having been unresolved by the, the departing British colonial administration. And now one thing to mention is that Nigeria is demographically unique in the whole world. It is the only country on earth that is equally split between Muslims and Christians. Yes, there are other multi-religious countries, but you usually find that one of the two religions, Christianity or, or uh, Muslims, has a clear majority. Nigeria is the only country where there's no clear majority. So the reason why Nigerians tend to think that um, that amalgamation of the two territories in 1914 was a mistake is because the fault lines of the country ever since then have always occurred on a north-south basis. So the civil war originally started on a north-south basis. The religious um, tremors, the religious conflicts that occur in the country tends to occur on a north-south basis because the bulk of the Muslims are in the north, the bulk of the Christians are in the south. Yes, there, there are exceptions, like you mentioned Yoruba land, which is the only part of Nigeria where you have one ethnic group being split 50-50 um, between Christians and Muslims. But that amalgamation, so many of Nigeria's current problems, inter-regional tension, inter-religious tension, um, kind of the rotation of power between the North and South. Most of those problems have their umbilical cords and root causes firmly embedded in that 1914 amalgamation. And to some extent, many of the post-independence in political innovations in Nigeria, like power sharing, rotation of power between the North and South, um, federal character, affirmative action, revenue sharing, to some extent, they are all reactions to 
and an attempt to address the structural deficiencies and the tensions that emanated from that 1914 um, amalgamation. And I think Nigeria is still grappling with those problems. And I don't know um, whether the, the aftershocks of that 1914 amendment, sorry, amalgamation are going to be um, corrected in the next 50 or even next 100 years. Uh, well, Max, uh, on that note, we've taken up a lot of your time, uh, but I have one last question for you, which is that I was hoping you might tell us a bit about what project you are currently working on. Sure. So I, I'm, 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 I'm going, rather than go forward in time, which has been my MO to date, this time I'm going to go backwards in time. So in, write, in writing what Britain did to Nigeria, it occurred to me that there's very little literature um, popular literature, at least, about pre-colonial Nigeria, about what Nigeria was like before Britain arrived. So my next book is going to be about pre-colonial Nigerian societies and telling the stories of all these pre-colonial empires that I mentioned at the beginning of the call. And perhaps the next book, rather than being called What Britain Did to Nigeria, is probably going to be called Before Britain Came to Nigeria. All right. Well, that sounds like a great project that I look forward to reading. Um, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Take care. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.